Thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, thanks to the BBA for having us. My name is Mark Finsterwald. I'm a litigator at Foley Hoag, and I practice complex commercial litigation and international litigation. And my name is Andrew Lowenstein. I'm a partner with Foley Hoag's Boston office, um, where I practice in our international litigation arbitration practice. Um, my practice focuses on representing parties both before international courts and tribunals and also in federal court litigation involving international legal issues. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Michael Licker. I am the uh, head of litigation investigations at, at Wayfair. I've been at Wayfair for about two and a half years where I handle um, all of our, our litigation globally. Uh, before that, I was at Foley Hoag with with both Mark and Andrew and worked on a variety of um, commercial litigation, including some of the federal court um, international litigation. So great to be here. So we're here today to talk about uh, 28 USC section 1782. Uh, that uh, is a uh, formerly obscure uh, statutory device for obtaining discovery in the United States to use in uh, proceedings outside of the United States. And I say formally obscure because it's gotten a lot more use and as a result, a lot more attention in the last 15 years or so. So uh, working with the uh, BBA's international law section, uh, we thought it would be uh, timely and uh, beneficial to get together and talk about what 1782 is, what do you do with it? What do you do if somebody's using it against you? Uh, and how can you make it work for you? So the way we're going to organize this discussion is I'm going to uh, provide an overview of the of the statute and the state of the law uh, interpreting the statute. And then Andrew is going to discuss uh, the nuts and bolts of actually litigating under 1782. Uh, how do you bring an action? How do you defend against one? And then Mike is going to cover strategy points uh, from an offensive and defensive perspective uh, with thoughts on how to maximize the value of your 1782 litigation uh, for your uh, organization. So I think that uh, to kick off the, uh, the legal discussion, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen so we can just take a look at the statute itself. Uh, so. Uh, uh, you should see this slide, uh, Andrew, Mike, can you give me a thumbs up if you can see the slide? Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so here is the text of section 1782A, A, uh, uh, subsection A is really where the action is. And so it's a mostly a big sprawling paragraph, but what it does is it just sets up uh, a path to U.S. discovery for non-U.S proceedings. Uh, you've got a, a litigation uh, uh, abroad. You either can't get discovery there or the uh, a person you want to get discovery from isn't in that country. They're in, uh, they're in the U.S. Uh, 1782 allows you to go to a federal district court, wherever that person is, and ask for a uh, discretionary order uh, requiring that person to provide documents or uh, other uh, forms of discovery. Uh, and the uh, a person who can apply for 1782 discovery is somebody who's an, uh, an interested person in the uh, proceeding in a foreign or international tribunal. And 
So the uh, federal court can require somebody located uh, within the, the court's district to produce documents or to give testimony, uh, but privilege, uh, U.S. privileges do apply, Fifth Amendment, uh, attorney-client, work product, that sort of thing. So U.S. discovery for use in foreign proceedings actually predates 1782. And I go to the next slide with a, just a few factoids about uh, the history of Section 1782. So before the statute was around, uh, if you wanted discovery uh, in the U.S. to use in a foreign proceeding, typically it was really only the foreign uh, country. Uh, it's uh, the foreign government itself uh, uh, could ask. Uh, it would have to. It would have to be a party to uh, the foreign proceeding, and it would send letters rogatory through diplomatic channels uh, to a U.S. court, and U.S. court could decide if the discovery would occur. Uh, 1948, Congress passed the first version of Section 1782, got rid of that requirement that foreign governments themselves have to be parties to the foreign uh, proceeding. And so anybody, uh, or honestly anybody, but uh, some uh, non-governmental applicants could seek 1782 discovery. And then a uh, in the late 50s and early 60s, a rules committee got together and uh, recommended some changes to the statute and Congress revised it in 1964 and broadened its scope. Uh, the pre-1964 version of 1782 allowed discovery for use in judicial proceedings in foreign courts. Uh, in 1964, Congress broadened that to just be proceedings in foreign or international tribunals uh, and so the meaning of tribunal has become a, a point of contention in litigation uh, in the years since, and really uh, with a pretty significant culmination last year. Uh, so to discuss how courts have interpreted 1782 over time, I'm just going to highlight a couple of seminal Supreme Court cases. Uh, one was in 2004, and then one was decided just last year. And then uh, I'm also just going to very quickly hit on a couple of cases that have interpreted or that have tried to apply uh, what the Supreme Court did last year. Um, and of course, if you have any uh, any questions at any point uh, when uh, any of us are talking, just uh, feel free to uh, put them in the Q&A function. Um, so the 2004 case was uh, Intel Corp versus Advanced Micro Devices. This case was an antitrust dispute in Europe uh, and uh, involving uh, competitors uh, in the tech space. And so this uh, Advanced Micro Devices uh, company brought a complaint against Intel uh, before a European Commission uh, that uh, in, uh, enforced. Uh, your, uh, European Union antitrust law. And so this wasn't a court. Uh, and the uh, an advanced micro devices wasn't really a traditional party. This wasn't like a plaintiff defendant situation. It was more of a, uh, a complaining to an investigative body type situation. And advanced micro devices sought uh, an order under 1782 out of federal court in California to get documents from Intel. Uh, and um, 
So there was a dispute over whether 1782 even applied to that situation. Did this uh, European Union Commission count as a tribunal? Uh, what were oh, were these really proceedings? And this was just uh, an investigation. Um, was uh, advanced micro devices an interested party under 1782? Because uh, it wasn't really a traditional uh, litigant. Uh, and so the court decided that the tribunal did include this European Commission because uh, it was acting as a first instance decision maker. And its decisions would be subject to review by uh, a court uh, in Europe. Uh, advanced Micro Devices was an interested person, uh, despite not being a traditional party to a case. Uh, the complainant in that commission did have a substantial role in the process and could bring evidence before the commission. Uh, and the proceeding was in such an early stage, uh, but that was all right uh, in the Supreme Court's view. Uh, the court said the proceeding doesn't have to be pending. It doesn't even have to be imminent. It just has to be reasonably contemplated. And also the court clarified that 1782, that uh, the scope of discovery that can be available under 1782 can be broader than what discovery would be available in the uh, foreign or international tribunal. Uh, uh, anybody who's litigated uh, outside of the United States knows that uh, discovery in, in the United States is something of an outlier. Uh, our discovery system is very broad, very invasive. Most countries in the world don't use it, uh, but that is not an obstacle to getting discovery under 1782. And the Intel court listed some factors for lower courts to consider when dealing with uh, 1782 actions and trying to figure out what, uh, is there a, a tribunal uh, who, uh, uh, is it appropriate for the court to, ec uh, to exercise its discretion to allow 1782? And so the uh, courts since Intel have been weighing these factors uh, in various degrees of success and clarity uh, to figure out if an application for discovery under 1782 should be granted. Last year, the question of what is a foreign or international tribunal came to a head. There had been a circuit split developing over the years as to whether arbitration outside the United States counts as a foreign or international tribunal. So parties would have a they would have a dispute uh, of an, um, a contract dispute or a dispute uh, subject to a, a treaty where the, um, the, co uh, the contractor treaty would have an arbitration clause. Somebody would uh, initiate an arbitration. And then often uh, arbitration rules would have very limited discovery, if any at all, and uh, often no third-party discovery. And then a party would come to a, a U.S. federal court and say, well, I want discovery of this or that person or business uh, uh, or other entity inside the United States. So give me that discovery. And then there'd be a fight over whether arbitration even counts as a foreign or international tribunal under Section 1782. So the Supreme Court fi uh, finally had to settle this last year. Uh, the case is called ZF Automotive versus Luxshare, but it was really uh, two cases consolidated 
that were pretty different circumstances. Uh, one case involved uh, a fairly straightforward commercial dispute where parties had a, a contract that uh, had a private arbitration clause. Uh, and this uh, the arbitration was uh, before a uh, a panel of three arbitrators selected in accordance with the rules of a private uh, alternative dispute resolution organization in Germany. And the court said, well, that pretty plainly a private arbitration, no government was involved in creating it. Uh, the arbitral tribunal was not a government body. That's not a foreign or international tribunal under section 1782. The other case was a little more complicated. That was a dispute where a party brought uh, or party initiated arbitration concerned to the uh, pursuant to the arbitration clause in a bilateral investment treaty between Russia and Lithuania. Uh, and so there was some question over whether that tribunal uh, qualified as a foreign or uh, international tribunal for purposes of 1782. And uh, this was a, and the court said, no, no, it didn't. Uh, the uh, the government uh, of Russia and Lithuania uh, had no role in uh, in setting up this arbitral body. It was an ad hoc uh, arbitration. Uh, the uh, the arbitrators had no uh, affiliation with the governments of either country. Uh, the the governments weren't funding it, um, and so the court essentially decided that it, unless the uh, the a government or uh, international body imbues uh, the tribunal with government authority, then it is not uh, a foreign or international tribunal for purposes of 1782. Uh, so there's so private commercial arbitration is out as far as eligibility for 1782. There is some question uh, remaining regarding investor state arbitrations, though pretty typically, they're just not gonna qualify. Uh, so this next slide, so it's a couple of cases that have come down since the ZF Automotive decision. And the, these cases, uh, in these cases, the courts had before ZF Automotive approved applications for 1782 and issued discovery orders, and then had to go back and vacate those orders. And so and these were investor state arbitrations, uh, both of them uh, before uh, ICSID, which is the World Bank's arbitral body, and so with the uh, and the courts interpreting the ZF Automotive cases said no, no 1782 uh, discovery available, and the courts were a little frustrated with the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court did not issue uh, did not really set forth a real test or guidance for uh, for the courts to use uh, in applying the ZF Automotive case. So what they've done is they've considered factors like is the arbitral panel a pre-existing body or was it formed just for purposes of adjudicating this dispute? Uh, did the uh, the bilateral investment treaty that had the arbitration clause, did that create the panel or do the parties to the dispute have to create it? Uh, did, it did this panel function independently of the, uh, the countries? That were parties to the dispute, like Russia and, and Lithuania, uh, in the uh, the ZF Automotive case, did they get government funding 
Do the parties have to fund it? Uh, are these public proceedings or are they confidential? Those are the sort of factors that uh, district courts are just going to have to grapple with as they get applications for uh, for seventeen eighty two discovery to use in investor state arbitrations. So that's uh, pretty much where we are with uh, with the law up to today. And um, so, uh, Andrew, uh, do you want to uh, talk now about the mechanics of litigating under 1782? Sure. And, and thanks, Mark. Um, so, you know, Mark, you know, just discussed in a kind of a broad overview of what 1782 um, permits um, and some of the key legal questions that, that have arisen um, over the decades that are implicated by 1782. Um, as I think as the audience will almost certainly appreciate, um, 1782 can be a very powerful um, tool. Um, uh, Mike will get into the more of the details about strategic use of 1782, but but I, I just want to emphasize how important it can be um, as a litigation tool um, to uh, obtain evidence in support of a claim that may be litigated uh, before a foreign uh, or international um, court or tribunal. Um, but what I what I would like to do is to discuss at a relatively high level um, the nuts and bolts of the process um, by which 1782 actions are litigated. Um, obviously, um, 1782 litigation, like I think any litigation, is subject to an infinite variety of issues um, that may arise. But that being said, there is a fairly well-worn pathways. Um, that indicate how these cases are typically litigated and the types of um, issues that that often come up. So what I'd like to do is just discuss um, some of them. So how do you file a 1782 application? And the answer is actually quite simple. Um, there are two options um, under the statute. Uh, the first is almost never used. The second is almost always used. Um, the first option is a party seeking 1782 discovery um, may uh, try to obtain a letter rogatory from the relevant court or tribunal where the underlying action is being uh, litigated. Um, this actually almost never happens, um, not least because uh, the letter rogatory process that I'm sure anybody who's dealt with this in practice knows uh, is an extraordinarily cumbersome uh, process that can be very lengthy and uh, involves intricate you know, details um, that uh, are difficult to satisfy. Um, and so uh, the letter rogatory process is, is almost never uh, invoked. I mean, another reason why it's, it's rarely invoked um, beyond its cumbersomeness is the fact that um, some of the institutions before which uh, action might be litigated may not have the power to uh, issue a letter rogatory. Um, Mark mentioned um, the European Commission, uh, which was the an institution that was uh, dealing with the competition claims that were being um, ventilated in the um, in the uh, the Intel case in two thousand four. It's not clear that the uh, European Commission would have the ability to issue a letter rogatory. So beyond the cumbersomeness, um, many of the institutions. Um, that uh, may be implicated may not actually have the ability to uh, issue a letter rogatory. 
So, so, so what happens much more frequently is that parties wishing to obtain discovery through 1782 file an application um, in the district court um, where either the uh, where the party from whom discovery is sought either resides um, or is found. Um, and this application is generally uh, filed ex parte. Um, and the way it plays out is the party seeking discovery files the application, uh, which is itself a relatively bare bones um, uh, document, probably not more than a, a few pages along that just sets out in very general terms um, why um, the application satisfies the relevant statutory requirements. Um, but it's supported by additional documents. And um, the first document that's generally included is a memorandum in support of the application. Um, and here, what the uh, memorandum needs to do is, in the first instance, um, show to the court satisfaction that the three statutory requirements for obtaining discovery under 1782 are satisfied. So first, it needs to establish that the person from whom or the entity from whom discovery is sought uh, is either residing in or is found in the judicial district where the action has been filed. Um, second, it needs to establish that the discovery is going to be used uh, in a proceeding before international uh, or foreign tribunal. And you know, Mark discussed some of the nuances of what qualifies as an international tribunal for purposes of 1782. And so depending on the institution, um, may require some extended discussion, for example, if it involves a in, in investment arbitration tribunal. Um, it's relatively straightforward to establish that a foreign court um, qualifies, but as Mark mentioned, there are other institutions that are um, uh, more tricky. And then third, um, the application needs to establish that the uh, application is being made uh, by an interested party to that underlying um, proceeding. Um, but beyond establishing those three statutory requirements, um, the application and the memorandum in support needs to convince the court that the various discretionary factors that the Supreme Court in Intel identified as guiding a district court's discretion as to whether to grant the application or not need to be um, demonstrated. So here, the memorandum will need to go into some detail as to whether um, the uh, party um, to, from whom discovery is sought is not uh, subject to the jurisdiction of the court or tribunal in the underlying proceeding. The idea being that if that party were, then it would be quite easy for the um, tribunal in the underlying proceeding to obtain that discovery uh, directly and without needing to uh, invoke um, the authority of the, the U.S. court. Um, second, um, it's important to establish that the tribunal in the, in the underlying proceeding is not opposed uh, to this type of discovery. In other words, um, to try and show to the extent possible that the institution will be receptive to receiving evidence obtained through the assistance of the U.S. judiciary. Um, third, that the uh, attempt to obtain 1782 to discovery is not a concealed attempt to try to circumvent the requirements that have otherwise been imposed in the underlying proceeding or in the jurisdiction um, where that proceeding is taking place. And then finally, 
that the discovery is narrowly tailored um, so that it won't be unduly burdensome or be unduly intrusive uh, for the target of the discovery. So, so that's what the memorandum in support of the application needs to establish. Um, it's also good practice to have that memorandum accompanied by a declaration. Now, typically the declaration will be made by counsel in the underlying proceeding. Um, now, this declaration, I think, needs to accomplish two different things. Um, one, it needs to establish as a factual matter the factual predicates um, for all the um, issues that I just mentioned. That is, the, you know, the three statutory requirements imposed by Section F-1782, as well as the discretionary factors that the Supreme Court has said should guide the district courts. But really beyond that, um, because... 1782 is discretionary on the part of the court, um, it needs to do something beyond just establishing um, the, the factors identified in Intel. It, it really needs to convince the court that it is um, important for the U.S. court to intervene and, and allow discovery. Um, and so what that means is explaining through the declaration um, the underlying proceeding and, and importantly, why the discovery that is being sought in the United States is directly relevant and, in fact, to the extent possible, critical for the fair adjudication of the facts and law in the underlying proceeding. Again, this is not a strictly speaking factor that is part of the matrix of issues that Intel said a court needs to look at. But I think as, as anybody's ever litigated a multi-factor discretionary test, um, there's a lot of play involved. And um, you need to convince the court why it should intervene, um, why the United States court should be, um, should allow um, this type of, of, of discovery. And there is just important to establish why the underlying evidence is critical. Um, and that is generally done through the accompanying um, declaration. Um, the final part of the package of documents that are included um, in the application um, is a proposed order. Um, and the proposed order will ask the court to authorize a subpoena um, that directs the discovery target um, to either produce the documents that are being requested um, or to appear for a deposition. And of course, um, this can include both a, a deposition of individuals as well as a um, rule um, 30B6 uh, deposition. But, but here, I think, because it's discretionary, um, it's important to try and keep the requested scope of discovery as narrow as possible. Uh, it's always useful to be able to tell the court, we're not seeking you know, untrammeled discovery like um, and and not as 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 comprehensive as we would if this was a U.S. court litigation. Instead, this is very targeted discovery um, that it will not be unduly burdensome. But as I said before, is directly relevant to key issues um, in the underlying um, proceeding. Um, so that's generally what a 1782 application looks like. Um, as I said, um, it's generally filed ex parte, uh, which means that. Uh, different things can happen uh, once it's filed. Um, sometimes the court will grant the application um, 
which means you are then authorized to issue the subpoena. You issue the subpoena, and then sometimes, not always, but more often than you might expect, um, the discovery target will comply. Um, it's not unheard of for a party from whom discovery is sought in these types of proceedings to be effectively neutral in the underlying dispute um, and willing to provide discovery, but for their own internal purposes um, may require a subpoena um, to uh, produce the documents instead of just voluntarily uh, producing the documents. Um, so sometimes um, the 1782 application, uh, if granted, will just result in that and then you know, you get the material you're looking for, and uh, that's the end of the story. Um, obviously, that's also not always the case, um, but sometimes it is. Um, and so what often sometimes happens is that um, the party from whom discovery is sought will either intervene um, in the proceeding before the district court has the opportunity to rule on the application and then make arguments as to why the application should be rejected either because any or all of the statutory requirements are not satisfied or because the discretionary factors identified in Intel do not weigh in favor of, of granting um, the application. Uh, sometimes, um, instead of uh, intervening before the granting of the, of the application, sometimes uh, the, the discovery target will wait until the court decides, and then upon the receipt of the subpoena, um, intervene at that point to uh, move to quash um, the subpoena. So this can play out in a number of different ways, um, but that's generally speaking, um, the, the main routes by which this path is trod. Andrew, I have a question for you. Uh, so you mentioned the target of the discovery intervening uh, to try to stop uh, an order from issuing. Uh, can uh, let's say the target of the discovery is a third party is, is not uh, a participant in whatever the litigation is outside the U.S. Can the opponent outside the U.S. intervene in the other side's 1782 application directed toward a third party to try to stop the discovery from occurring? Yes, uh, th that is also um, possible. In fact, um, frequently uh, happens, uh, and it typically. The sort of argument that uh, a um, a party in that posture might make uh, would be that this is an attempt to circumvent the otherwise applicable um, restrictions on obtaining discovery um, in the underlying proceeding. Andrew, related related question for you that others might find interesting because of the ex parte nature. How does how does somebody typically find out? Um, about a 1782 proceeding before the subpoena actually issues. I can remember the two of us, we had a situation where we were, we had heard rumors that one might be coming with respect to one of our clients. We were checking Pacer like every day for, for weeks um, looking for it. But is there, is there any formal notice or not until after the, uh, the, the applications acted on? So, so that will, is really a, so a tactical question um, to de decide um, whether to, you know, alert um, the discovery target or, or, or it, um, if it's the opposing party in uh, the underlying litigation that, that you've done this. Um, and that's really kind of a facts and circumstances type uh, inquiry. Um, one thing that's always possible is to alert the 
the tribunal um, that that you've done this or intend to do it. Um, I mean, that's a tactical question, but that sometimes that's beneficial um, because it, it might be useful to be able to tell the district court that the you know the foreign court um, is aware um, um, that 1782 has been invoked and is not objected. Um, and so that might go some way to, um, you know, reducing the likelihood that that the U.S. court might say that this is uh, that that it will decline to allow the discovery because is it would not be the foreign court wouldn't be receptive or it's somehow improper under the the foreign courts um, you know case law or jurisprudence. I guess another tactical question for for both of you guys do do you see when thinking when when people are thinking if they're gonna they're going to put together a 1782 application thinking about the uh, written discovery requests that they they might attach or the the, the 30b6 topics that they they might include are, are you seeing courts um actually going through and saying you can have request one three and seven but not the rest or is it more an, an all or nothing approach how do, how do courts typically approach that i i think courts will um often narrow down um, the requests. And, and sometimes it's actually not done by the court itself. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, sometimes the discovery target will just agree. Um, kind of a variant on that possibility is, you know, a meet and confer process um, in which the parties consensually agree by themselves um, to, you know, narrow the scope of the subpoena. Um, or maybe agree upon a protective order um, if, say, there are confidential business information that, that's implicated by the requests. Um, and so so really, you're just kind of at that point in the kind of normal discovery process where ideally the parties try to work it out themselves. But but certainly if that doesn't happen, um, the court, ha- court has the ability um, to you know pick and choose um, what discovery to allow and, and what to deny. Yeah, that, this is kind of bleeding into um, my practical consideration section. But to me, if, if I'm thinking about this um, from kind of an, an in-house perspective and where I where I want to fight, I, I would fight the legal issues all day long. Like, can if if I think that if if I'm the recipient of of one of these applications, or I'm on the other side rather, and I think there's a legal issue why it shouldn't issue at all, it's circumventing the foreign court. I litigate that all day long, but we all know how much courts hate discovery fights. So if you're if you're really getting into like kind of a, a, a you know a, a request by request discovery fight, that's where I'd probably want to work on work on a compromise and see if and see if we could find some 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 area of agreement. I think. Right, and I think that that approach makes a lot of the sense um, in certain circumstances because there could be scenarios where um, there, there's a risk that um, litigating the legal issue could could have a ad could set an adverse precedent. Um, and if if the underlying materials themselves are not objectionable to the, the party from whom discovery is sought, it may be worthwhile just to come to some consensual agreement, um, have the the application withdrawn. Um, and so the court never rules on the underlying legal issue. All right, should I should I jump in with some some, some practical 
considerations and tips. Sure. So, so I want to kind of divide the world um, into offensive use of, of 1782 and then defensive. Um, what do you do if, if, if you're on the other side of somebody else's application? Um, so, you know, I, I think of this in, in kind of, of two ways. I think of it is as aiding the, the substance on the offensive side, aiding the substance of a, um, the, the merits of a, of a litigation in a, in a foreign tribunal. Um, and then also what can happen when you, um, when, when you're kind of at the collection phase, when, when you've won and you need, you need information to help you collect. Um, so, so just to give like a, a real life, ex- a sort of real life example, I'm going to use an example of, a, of an international litigation, um, that, that I'm dealing with. There's, there's no 1782 component, but I'm kind of, um, just ma- I'm making that part up of, of how 1782 could potentially be useful. And I'm, I'm going to describe this at a really kind of broad and high level because it is, it's pending litigation. So I don't, I don't want to go too deep, but I think it's a good example. So we've got a, a, a dispute um, in the, in the UK, um, potentially in a, in a UK court um, over a, a construction project in a warehouse. Um, and so, so we've satisfied the foreign, the foreign tribunal piece. It's, there's no, there's no litigation yet, but there's reasonably going to be, be litigation. So that probably gets you close enough. Um, and the, the, the big dispute is over in the, in the middle of this, this project, the other side um, came to us and said, by the way, we, we want you to pay millions of dollars more than um, we actually contracted for. And that, that basically led to a blow up and kind of the, the end of end of the contract. So the both both our side and the other side are are, are multinational corporations have have entities and and um, in in multiple different countries, um, including the United States. And it, it's 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 a setup where um, in, in both cases where the the contracting entities, the legal entities involved in the contracting, are sitting in Europe. But the the mothership is is sort of in the U.S. and kind of everything is is happening in the U.S. and everybody's everybody's talking to everybody. Decisions are being made. So what what the what what people in the U.S. were were doing and saying at the time of this um, of this this dispute started would be would be really really interesting in discovery and potentially um, something that. Um, you wouldn't be able to get at um, in the in the UK litigation because of the, the court's jurisdiction there. So that that's like a potential use of, of how I would, would think about this kind of at, at the the merits piece. Um, other other offensive ways, um, and I think this is the way the, the the question I was asking Andrew about before when we when I mentioned that we were were waiting for weeks, we thought that one of our clients was going to receive a 1782. Is, is sort of chasing the money when you've you're, you're either about to win or you you've won but the the litigation is still pending um using it when when there's money in the US or there's US banks involved to to um, issue a um a, to use 1782 application to try to get bank records um another thing is if you if you're looking at potential veil piercing alter ego you need to know about how the different corporate entities fit together. Um, and you can't get at the documents of one corporate entity um, because they are outside of the, the jurisdiction of, of where you're actually litigating and they're in the U.S. 
Um, it's another possibility. And what's I, I don't I don't know I don't think we've covered this yet. But one one thing that's sort of interesting is is courts have interpreted 1782 to actually let you get at documents um, that are outside the U.S. so long as the the corporate entity that you're targeting in the U.S. has possession of custody or control over those documents, ability to get at those documents. So you can actually, this ties back into one of the limitations of are you circ- circumventing somehow the, the actual foreign tribunal, but there, there theoretically is the ability there to, to get at the documents of, of multiple entities. It's kind of the setup I'm talking about where for all intents and purposes, everything is controlled by the, by the U.S., um, the U.S. entity, so that's that's how I would kind of think about this. I think from an from an offensive strategy, as Andrew said um, at the beginning of his section, this is um, a super super powerful tool if used if used correctly. Um, it's becoming more common. I think I think it's becoming more common for for applications to be be granted as well. So um, a very a very powerful tool if if used in the right ways. Um, I want to I want to talk about kind of the defensive side of things, but Andrew, Mark, anything to anything to add there? Um, uh, just just uh, yeah, j- just two additional thoughts on offensive of use of of seventeen eighty two. Um, I think Mike is absolutely right that that you know, U.S. based affiliates um, of entities that are involved in the foreign litigation are are a classic target for discovery. Um, another category would be like former employees um, who may be you know, residing in the United States. Um, and then the, the other aspect of 1782 that is I think, powerful and unique um, is that there doesn't actually need to be pending litigation in order to invoke it. Um, Supreme Court has been quite clear that um, you know, a, a litigation that has not yet been commenced but is contemplated um, would also qualify for 1782. Um, and, and so that's just another um, kind of relatively unique aspect of, of the statute that it allows you to get effectively pre-litigation discovery um, that would you know, help you identify you know, what claims you might want to bring or even what, what defendants you might want to bring claims against. Yeah, and that's a great point. That's kind of the example I gave in in the UK. Like that's 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 one of the things I think about there, right? Like, can I can I get lit discovery in the US before filing in the UK that might actually help me either either know whether to file a claim in the UK? Do I do I have a claim? And if I do have a claim, write a, a stronger com- complaint um, in the UK. Um, so again, super super powerful. Um, so on the defensive side, I guess one warning I'll give: um, if you're going to use it, kind of, if, if you're going to use um, 1782 offensively to to assist with what I'll call like merits discovery, you need to be careful what you wish for because it can become reciprocal very quickly. Um, and I think there's there's some precedent out there of of courts saying, you know, kind of what's what's good for you is good for the other side too. So why don't why don't you guys go go work it out and both take discovery from each other in the U.S. So it's it, it it's uh, certainly strategic benefits, but you need to think about what do you have um, in the U.S. that the other side might be able to get at at that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get at in a a foreign uh, foreign proceeding. Um, Mike, on that point, uh, couldn't you also be opening the door to 
let's say, uh, non-party uh, allies, we have experts you've worked with, or uh, 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 potential co-plaintiffs uh, uh, or co-defendants who once, uh, once one side starts taking 1782 discovery, that it could clue the other side in uh, to uh, potential uh, benefits to be gained there. Yeah, completely. I mean, you can you can very quickly ratchet up what what may not be, um, you know, a, a contentious or or large scale expensive suit and and make it very expensive. I think you know one of the uh, one of the benefits of of litigating in Europe is it can typically be a lot less expensive because some of the the limitations on discovery that uh, that we don't have in the United States, and you can very quickly. Um, make something expensive. So I think it's just eyes wide open. I, I think that this is this is a very powerful tool that should be used when you need it. But you just need to be aware and I think kind of map out what the what the possibilities are um, if you're going to go down this road. So that there's there's no surprises there. Um, some of the other things to to think about. I mean, this like any legal mechanism, this this statute can be abused, misused, negative PR campaigns, um, incre intentionally increase litigation costs. Like I said, you can, you can increase the cost really quickly um, for the other side. So just, just things to be careful about there. Um, I also think you want to, you know, Andrew had mentioned, um, um, you know, employees, indiv individuals residing in, in the U.S., um, if, if you get the the hint that there there might be a 1782 action coming, um, you you want to think about like who are the people that could be encompassed by this? Do we want to do we want to defend them? Do we want to tip them off and give them a heads up? All the things you'd sort of think about when um, subpoenas might start flying in a, in a U.S. litigation. You'd want to think about here because once the once the application is granted, it's it's sort of the same thing and the subpoenas are out there um sort of the same things you'd think about in a, in a big litigation with a lot of um subpoenas I, I think on the um you know the the intel factors that both mark and andrew talked about which those are you know those are once you get past those three kind of technical requirements the intel factors are really where one of these applications will will rise and fall um i, I think you you know i just I, I think about this kind of strategically like I'd think about anything else. And to me, if, if you're on the defensive side of this and you've actually, you, you found out about the ex parte application, you're contesting it before the application's actually been granted. If you can make a showing that um, this is an effort to, to circumvent what the foreign tribunal wants, what, what it actually wants, or what you could actually do there in, in discovery, um, I think that's probably the, the the most powerful showing you can make. This is just an end that there's already a proceeding like, hey, judge, this is being handled in the UK and Germany, wherever. Um, they're just trying to go around what's happening there for discovery that is unnecessary and that they they couldn't they couldn't get there. Um, I think if you if if you can't make a showing like that, then I think this this is I think leads into a little bit what Andrew and I were were talking about a few minutes ago. You start to move into thinking about can I can I limit the damage? Can I can I negotiate with the other side to limit the request? Limit if they're looking for depositions, maybe agree to documents and try to take depositions off the table. Limit the number of people that are being deposed. Get a strong protective order in place. You start thinking about the things you would do in a ordinary discovery battle um, because that's that's sort of what this 
what this turns into. But I think those are the um, those are the things I would think about. Um, Andrew, Mark, any, feel free to add anything. Yeah, one just additional um, thought to add. I mean, we've talked about defensive in the sense of defending um, against a 1782 application. Um, just defense is also implicated in another sense um, in that um, 1782 also applies to criminal um, actions. Um, and so um, it's also a powerful tool that is available to defense counsel um, if he or she is defending a client in a foreign criminal investigation or prosecution. And if there's relevant evidence located in the United States um, or a relevant witness in the United States, um, 1782 can then be used to obtain evidence in support of the defense efforts. In, in those cases, uh, there's uh, the 1782 applicant is going to have a stronger argument to make to the judge about the urgency uh, and the need for that uh, for that discovery. Okay, we've got a little bit of time left. Um, I don't think we don't see any questions on the Q and A. Uh, I don't know if there's any any other thoughts, Andrew, Mike, I'll start. Uh, just uh, if, if anybody does have a question, please feel free to to type it into the Q and Q and A, and we'd be more than happy to address it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, uh, and including uh, afterward uh, uh, after this is over, uh, if you have a question, something comes up, just reach out to one of us. Um, be happy to discuss. Question. Oh, okay. Uh, great. Great. Well, hearing no questions or or more accurately reading no questions. Mm -hmm. um, thank you very much to everybody for for attending. And and as Mark said, please uh, feel free to reach out to any of us if um, you do have uh, any questions uh, that may occur to you later. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Thanks a lot.